Well, last week we began a series walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is the largest single discourse of Jesus recorded in the Bible. Right now we're still in the introduction of his sermon, traditionally referred to as the Beatitudes. A Beatitude is a statement about the attitudes and actions that God chooses to bless. Anyone who wants to receive the blessing of God should pay careful attention to the opening of this most famous sermon of Jesus. Now remember also the big picture for this sermon. Jesus is sharing with us what is referred to as the gospel of the kingdom, which turns out to be a description of how to bring heaven to earth. You guys catching that? It's a, it's a just. We're not hearing anything. Really? The feedback? It's gone now. Okay. Well, no, it's gone now. I was just waiting for the mic to come back up. Um, the gospel of the kingdom. It's a description of how to bring heaven to earth. That's really what Jesus is talking about. That's to say that the goal of Jesus and his people should be that the kingdom of God would take over and that his will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. An end that we know will not be 100% fulfilled until the return of Christ, and yet our job is to prepare the way and to take as much ground as we can until then. Also, here in these Beatitudes, we can see the fact that the expansion of God's kingdom on earth begins in your very own heart. And so, this is exactly where Jesus starts. He starts with our attitudes. He starts even with our disposition. He starts with our perspective and our faith. Specifically, Jesus starts with the requirement that we must be desperate for God in order to receive both Him and the heaven He brings. This is where Jesus begins. And so, last week we learned that God responds to spiritual beggars who mourn over their own inadequacy to reach Him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, says Jesus. He promised the kingdom of heaven and the comfort of the Spirit to the same. Don't miss this. Jesus begins His first major address to the world, and He starts with how desperately people need God. See, the self-sufficient heart is a closed door to the heavenly kingdom. Heaven does not come down through the life that settles for what this world has to offer. Only when we mourn about our loss, about our lack, and our spiritual need do we look to God for comfort and fulfillment and strength. It's only in those moments, through those needy hearts, that God's kingdom breaks through the darkness like the dawn. As His people, while we're here on this earth, The God of heaven wants us to represent Him to others, to advance His cause and His will. Understand that followers of Christ are to live as ambassadors and our churches are to be His embassies. You and I are heaven's emissaries and since we are fallen, earthly creatures, that means we're desperate for God to work in us and through us. We live in constant need of His presence and power if we are to do what He's called us to do, to bring God's heaven to bear 
on earth. So even though we're not talking about material things, understand that the blessing God is promising is not only for later. God wants us to be blessed with His presence even during our sojourn here on earth. Even as we look forward to our permanent home with Him, we are to find His blessing even now and even here in this pain-filled world. Otherwise, why would Jesus tell us who will be blessed? And don't forget what it really means to be blessed by God. Last week I gave you this from Ford's unauthorized dictionary. FUD, as my kids call it. Blessed. To have and to be everything you would want if you really knew what you wanted. Sometimes I get a glimpse of what I really want. Sometimes the curtain draws back for just a moment. And instead of all the things I've been brainwashed to think I want, like bigger tires for my truck, or the approval of men. Sometimes I see the things I really want, the things of God, His ideals, His values, His kingdom manifested through my life. Sometimes I get a glimpse of true blessings. And that glimpse is like a moment of sight to a blind man. In fact, that is exactly what I pray will happen during this season together as a church. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, I hope and I pray that God will give us all glimpses of His world, His kingdom. Nothing changes our hearts more than seeing things from God's perspective. And that is why it is so incredible to study the words of Jesus Christ. He is our window into heaven. So let us look through the window. This is what Jesus said next. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You'll notice I chose the NIV translation this week over my usual favorite, the New American Standard, which I use because it's considered to be the most literal. However, in this verse, my usual version chooses the word gentle instead of meek, which maybe could work if the word gentle still held its original meaning. Originally, the word gentle spoke of nobility and self-control and civility, such as in the word gentleman. But now people think of fabric softener or the way one should hold a baby. I don't like to question the translations often, but the word gentle only gives half of the meaning of the original word here. The KJV or the NIV or now the ESV do well to stick with the word meek in this verse. Webster says meekness is the ability to patiently endure injury without resentment. Webster's also mentions the word moderate which is appropriate in that we're talking about finding a balance between gentleness and strength. One who is meek is anything but a violent extremist. He or she is rational, has a level head, and can see things from multiple angles. We're talking about having the strength to be gentle even in the face of antagonism from those in opposition. So while gentleness is a portion of meekness, it is not a good synonym at all. I'll talk about the original Greek word used here in a moment, but for now my point is that the only adequate English word I know of to communicate the original intent of what Jesus said here is meek. In other words, the good old King James Version had this one right all along. Throwing a bone out to the older folks, which is starting to include me. Now, we should also take note that Jesus' words here in the third beatitude are drawn from the Old Testament. 
In fact, virtually everything out of the mouth of Christ finds its source in previously written Scripture. He didn't come up with any of these beatitudes out of thin air. Jesus mostly taught what had already been revealed from God, only he taught it in a different way. What made the teachings of Christ so radical and distinctive, even to the Jews, is the way in which he applied ancient Scripture. When Jesus would matter-of-factly point out what God had always meant by his previous revelation, usually contradicting what the current religious leaders were saying, that's when people freaked out. Sometimes in order to correct their misunderstanding, Jesus would simply change or add a word to Scripture. Since he was God, he could do that without plagiarizing himself. And that's exactly what Jesus did here, as we will see in a moment. He changed the word. So first understand that here in the third beatitude, Jesus quotes Psalm 37, which says, verse 10, A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. When King David, the author of this psalm, wrote, the meek will inherit the land, he was thinking of the promised land, the land of Canaan, which the Israelites had been promised as an inheritance. They were always fighting to keep this land. During David's lifetime, they would lose some of it, and then they would gain some of it back, and so on. Endless wars. Both David and Jesus would say that to keep the land and have peace, the people actually needed to learn to be meek. But what does that mean? I mentioned a balance between strength and gentleness. The idea is strength that does not automatically react aggressively to aggression. To be meek is to have the inner strength to not respond in kind to rudeness or hatred or violence. I think part of this has to do with choosing as few battles or picking as few fights as possible. David is wise and he knows that hubris leads to unnecessary war while humility can stave off conflict and sustain peace. That's a good start at understanding meekness. But let's keep thinking through this. David had been called a man after God's own heart in Scripture. And he was indeed meek in many ways. While he was also mighty in battle, David chose to avoid a fight more often than not. He refused to take the kingdom from Saul, even long after God had announced that David would be king. Rather than to press his rights, David waited for many years. If you read the book of 1 Samuel, you will see clearly the meekness that David exhibited. Even while Saul was out to kill him, David fought back only with valiant attempts to make peace. David was very strong on the outside. I mean, the guy killed a lion, a bear, Goliath, he was strong. But he was also strong enough inside to be humble and gentle. Indeed, after David became king, God's people inherited more land than they had ever had before. Fast forward to the first century when Jesus is teaching, and here they are having lost their inherited land to the Roman occupiers. And Jesus quotes David to say that the meek inherited the land before, and they will inherit it again. His listeners would not have missed the fact that he was quoting David. See, God had promised this land to them with an everlasting covenant, but this particular covenant was tied to their choices as well. And as they had repeatedly and cyclically refused to worship God alone, he had allowed other nations to conquer them. This time it had been the evil Roman Empire. And so here's Jesus, who was also called the son of David, saying the solution to their situation 
will come out of meekness rather than aggression. I'm pretty sure Jesus lost the support of the zealot party on that very day. We'll learn more about them later in the series. They wanted war. It would seem that most of what Jesus says is contrary to what the crowd hopes for, what they hope to hear from him. Essentially, Jesus is saying, don't fight for it, just have the strength to wait for it. They are hearing the type of David who would not take the kingdom from Saul for over a decade rather than the David who killed so many Philistines. And they're not happy about it. They're not seeing the military commander they think they need in Jesus, and they're not hearing what they want to hear. In calling for meekness, Jesus is calling them to have faith and to wait and, and hear this, to endure. So this miracle worker from God who they hope is the Messiah does not promise to end their troubles with one fell swoop of miraculous conquests. Instead, he calls upon them to remain both strong and gentle. They're to be meek like him and to trust God with the results. But I wonder if anyone else noticed a very important difference between what David said and what Jesus said. David said the meek will inherit the land. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. And by the way, the difference is apparent in the original languages because Jesus chose the more general term for this earth. David spoke of the old covenant which was limited to a relatively small group of people in a tiny geographical location called the Promised Land. But Jesus spoke of the New Covenant, which involves people from every tongue, tribe, and nation across the whole earth, that which will ultimately be filled, fulfilled in a new earth, which will be remade as heaven comes down and God makes His home among men and women. This is what it means to pray for God's kingdom to come, by the way. In the now, this kingdom is already come with Jesus and it's expanded on earth through the partnership of his followers but in the future his kingdom will be fully manifested at the second coming of Christ which could happen any day so unlike David Jesus is not talking about the Palestinian promised land at all at this point in history God is moving on from all of those geographical and national limitations in fact even the Old Testament words about the promised land we're always meant to foreshadow a much greater promised land, which we call heaven, one which will actually be the earth remade, also known as the new Jerusalem, which will come down with Christ from heaven and with heaven. And this is the paradise to be inherited by all those who put their faith in the very Messiah who was speaking to them that day. In this third beatitude, Jesus isn't nearly as concerned about geographical ownership of land as he is about the inheritance of God's kingdom, which is so much bigger than terra firma. Throughout his teaching, by his example, Jesus repeatedly tried to show the people that God could give them freedom from such temporal constraints as chunks of land. Dispute over which, by the way, is generally the cause of war. No, Jesus would give them a better kind of liberation, a better kind of inheritance, a better kind of kingdom which powerful men could never conquer. He wanted us all to understand that when God's kingdom comes into our hearts and we live it out, there is nothing, not even death, that can take it away. So what did Jesus mean when he said, the meek shall inherit the earth? 
He meant the meek shall inherit God's promised heritage. God's true kingdom. An eternity in God's place. In God's love and yes, in an actual location that being the eternally new earth which is to come, a place of eternal peace where the meek will rule with Christ forever. Now, does this mean that the way to get into heaven is by being meek? No. In this text, Jesus is describing, not prescribing. In other words, he's not actually telling us how to inherit heaven on earth as much as he is telling us who will inherit heaven on earth. The who are those who are meek, like Christ. But how do we become like him? Well, it starts with a decision to turn to Jesus and receive his grace and forgiveness by faith, which results in a complete transformation of your soul, something God will do as you surrender in desperation to him. The transformation has a beginning point, a very clear beginning point, but it's all worked out over time through a life of discipleship, which simply means that you are becoming more like him. To be saved means that you've been saved from wrath. But it also means that God is changing you from the inside out to make you more like Jesus. And so meekness comes through knowing Jesus and it's developed over time. Show me a spiritually mature person, someone who has spent a lifetime becoming more like Jesus, and I will show you a person who is meek like him. Remember the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5. The first one is love. The last one is self-control. What's the second to last one? Your Bible probably says gentleness. Guess what? That's the same root word as our text today. In fact, in the KJV, this fruit is still referred to as meekness. This is ultimately the same word that Jesus used in our text today. Meekness is actually a fruit which comes only through the Spirit of God at work within believers. Now, if meekness is a fruit, that means it is a result. And so this is not so much a goal as it is a measuring stick. Are you meek like Jesus? Strong yet gentle. Confident yet humble. Courageous yet under control. If you know that you're not currently meek, perhaps you've never been saved in the first place. That would be one possibility. And so discipleship or becoming more like Jesus never got started. Following Jesus does have a starting point, which is a radical conversion of the soul by grace through faith in Him. As Jesus put it, you must be born again. But for many of you, that has already occurred. And so if you still are honestly not meek like Jesus, what does that mean? Well, it probably means you need to grow up and grow stronger in this area. And since spiritual growth is something we partner with God to achieve, it can help to know exactly where effort is required. Some of us may need to focus on the meekness that God wants to develop in us. I do not believe God just zaps us with character. He waits for us to come to Him for help as we seek to change. Because of this, I think we need to look further into understanding what it means to be meek like Jesus. We need to know what to look for and hope for and, and pray for and work toward with God's help. After all, Jesus promises the earth, which is a reference to the new earth, 
In other words, paradise to those who are meek. We probably ought to be very clear on what meekness looks like. I've said a few things, but let me try an illustration about someone I know who I believe to be meek, like Christ. I know a man who is a Marine Corps veteran who served in the Vietnam War. He went in after graduating from college and after officer's candidate school, was commissioned as a second lieutenant. During his tour of duty, he was in command of a platoon of men, sometimes more. These younger men counted on him, their leader, for survival. His decisions and actions saved many of their lives. He was rated as an expert with his military-issue Colt 45, a sharpshooter with his M16 rifle. After the war, he was honorably discharged as a decorated captain. I truly believe that in many ways he's the strongest man I've ever known. Though it's hard to believe now, this gentle man had the horrible yet necessary experience of killing some of those who were out to kill him and his men. That's war. When that moment came, he was strong enough to do what he had to do. He saved the lives of his men by acting decisively as a leader and was awarded a special commendation for his acts of valor. Regardless of the fact that it was kill or be killed, those memories haunted him for a long time. Yet even in dealing with this trauma, this man showed incredible strength and resolve. He never gave in to sadness. He never gave himself permission to shut down over what he had been forced to do on the field of battle. The same man could never watch an episode of The Little House on the Prairie without shedding many tears. He's a loving, kind, and gentle, a man of steel and velvet, as his wife calls him. He handled hundreds of conflicts as a school district superintendent and thwarted the belligerence of sometimes violent people without ever needing to throw a punch. I never knew of him resorting to a fight, even when people attacked him unfairly. He had an uncanny ability to keep his cool and often his calm spirit diffused an aggressor. This is a man who I've seen split oak logs as big around as a car tire in three strokes. And yet he treats his wife with tenderness. This man has been the boss to literally hundreds of employees, but he never needed to be bossy at home. When his children needed discipline, he could make it hurt. But it truly hurt him even worse. He could be firm, but never without mercy in his eyes. And never without following punishment with unreserved forgiveness and love. In the family, this man was the last to get new clothes. He was the last to buy new stuff. He was the last to get his way, the last to complain. All being the first to forgive. He was always, and I mean always, the first to make peace. The first to say, I'm sorry. This man who had to work hard as anyone I've ever known. He made a point to teach that to his children, patiently enduring their whining and complaining until finally they began to value what he valued, a job well done. He combined high expectation with understanding and mercy. He was rugged yet tender, masculine yet emotional, strong yet gentle. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm talking about my dad. And the reason I'm telling you all this is that all the men I know, honestly, no one exemplifies what it means to be meek any better than he does. As mentioned, the word meek has just about fallen out of usage. And that's a shame because there is no other single word I know of that communicates what, is, what it means to be meek. Jesus said, blessed are the praus, 
That's the Greek word Jesus used, translated in our English text as meek. Praus. The philosopher Aristotle actually wrote a lot about this word, and I'm pretty sure he had a good grasp of the Greek language. Aristotle. He described this character trait as the mean or the middle point between being too angry too often and never being angry at all. That's the way he described it. And Aristotle thought the meek man would be upset about wrongs done to others, but never overwhelmed by wrongs done to himself. Another helpful insight is found in the fact that in the Greek, this word was used to describe powerful animals that had been domesticated or brought under control. Therefore, the praus or meek person should be thought of as strong, even powerful, yet always under control. One Bible commentary says meekness is a blend of spiritual poise and strength. John Wesley said those who are meek hold all their passions and affections evenly balanced. But again, a textbook definition just doesn't quite cover it. I think this is a word only to be defined by real-life example. Other than Christ, no biblical hero demonstrated meekness more than Moses. The Bible actually says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. I've noticed that sometimes when people use the word meek, they think of the word weak. I don't know if it's because the two words rhyme, but hear me clearly say that the idea of weakness is not found anywhere in the idea of meekness, not even just a little bit. The fact that the Bible says Moses was meek should tell us that meekness does not mean weakness. Moses was an incredibly strong leader. Who else has led a million or so people to leave their homes and walk out into the desert? Pharaoh was the most powerful man on earth at the time, and Moses went toe-to-toe with him. The meekest man on earth confronted the so-called God of Egypt in a smackdown, and Moses kicked his tail. Read the story again. You might be surprised how it almost sounds like Moses performed miracles in his own strength. That's the way it reads. And Moses lifted up his staff and the Red Sea parted. And Moses did this and Moses did that. Now, of course, we know that God was doing these things through him. But the fact is that the one true God had actually given Moses amazing power. At least once, Moses sinned by using that power without permission from God. In terms of strength or power, there's no person in history with the exception of Jesus who compares to Moses. It seemed like he could have done anything. And this guy was a superhero. God was with him in such a personal and powerful way. It was almost frightening. Moses would come out of a meeting with God and his face would shine so bright that people couldn't look at him. They would be blinded. The Bible says God talked to him as a man talks to his friend. And yet the same guy was also meek. More meek than any other man on the face of the earth. That ought to tell us a lot about the strength of meekness. Of course, the ultimate example of meekness can be seen in Jesus Christ. I think it's fairly obvious in these Beatitudes that Jesus is laying out his own list of character traits. He's saying, to be blessed, be like me. Later, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Many modern translations use the word humble here which in my view is unfortunate. Here again, the original word in the Greek text is praus. And again, words like humble and gentle simply do not cover it. While I'm on this, let me say something about humility. 
Because again, your translation for some of these verses probably uses the word humble to describe Jesus rather than the word meek. You're not always going to remember that meekness is a better word. So let me address the idea of humility for a moment. I don't think that it is an error to say that Jesus was humble, but I do think we need to have a more robust understanding of what that means. Because let's remember for a second that the disciples worshiped Jesus on multiple occasions and he did not stop them. How is that humility? Well, first of all, hear this. Humility is not a poor self-image. Listen, humility is not even a description of how you feel about yourself. As much as it should be a description of what you choose to do and say. Humility is shown in selfless actions, not in negative feelings or comments about yourself. Humility is being strong enough inside to make sacrifices outside. Humility is about being willing to decrease so someone else can increase. In fact, we're now nearing an understanding of humility that approaches meekness. Picture Jesus in the upper room. The night when he's about to be betrayed by Judas. The same night when he will be arrested. The same night when Peter will deny he even knows him three times. It's the night when all the other disciples will desert him, at least on some level. And Jesus knows all this is about to happen. He even tells them that it's all about to happen. And then what does he do? He gets down on his knees and starts washing their feet. This is humility. And a demonstration of incredible inner strength. This is gentleness and humility and strength all wrapped up together into a picture of what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the meek. Foot washing was considered so menial, so grotesque that the law said people couldn't even require their slaves to do it. The people wore sandals. They walked on dusty roads littered with animal droppings and who knows what else. And personally, one of my core beliefs is that feet are just gross. My <laughs> kids knew this. I mean, if they wanted to get dad, they could just get at me with their feet. I'm like, I'm very squeamish about feet. I don't like feet. And here we're talking about men's feet. I mean, these men were about to abandon Jesus hours later. He clearly knew that already. And yet he got down and washed the dirt, the grime, and the stench off their feet. All 12 of them, including the one who was about to betray him. And then he said, the greatest among you is the one who serves. Friends, I'm pretty sure that I am not that humble. And I know that I'm not that strong. God is not finished with me yet, thankfully. But Jesus, our example, did all of this for people who were about to let him down to a degree that you and I have never been let down. That scene in the upper room is a picture of Christ-like meekness. It's about being strong enough to put others first, even when they don't deserve it. That's what it means to be meek. Being strong enough inside to be kind to the mean-spirited. Strong enough inside to be gentle to the harsh. And strong enough inside to be humble before the prideful. And strong enough inside to be selfless to the selfish. That is what it means to be meek like Christ. Jesus was strong. He knew that with one word he could have whisked away all of humanity. And we would have deserved it. He created everything, and he could have uncreated everything. 
but because he was meek, because he was humble and gentle and sympathetic and strong on the inside, he chose to do something else. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that's above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will live with God on His land, in His kingdom, which one day will be manifested completely in a new heaven and a new earth, the paradise promised to those who follow Jesus. This is the inheritance of those who are meek like Christ, and those who know Him are becoming meek because He never stops changing us. We've talked about a few men who were meek, but for the sake of contrast, let's wrap up by looking at a man who was just the opposite. This man was a contemporary of Jesus, though they likely never met. Everything this man did testified to his incredible wealth and power. This man built possibly the richest monarchy in the history of the world. His engineering feats have dumbfounded contemporary architects and engineers. Experts today can do little more than shake their heads in disbelief of what he built. The facts speak for themselves. Here are a few. His monetary wealth not only surpassed Caesar's, but exceeded the total collective wealth of the entire Roman Empire. He retained 450,000 employees paid. He created a communication system that enabled messages to be passed to every corner of the kingdom in less than 90 minutes. He literally moved a mountain and created an incredible monument to human ingenuity, the Herodian. He controlled the Via Maris and built the city of Caesarea from the ground up, stealing the center of world trade from Alexandria in the process. Stones placed in the walls of the temple he built in Jerusalem could not be moved and placed today even with modern equipment. His 14-mile aqueduct at Caesarea was almost miraculously engineered with a perfect slope. He built an impenetrable fortress at Masada, perhaps the strongest in history. His baths, pools, and mosaics contain beauty beyond description. Such a resume should have resulted in a legacy documented in history books, movies, and monuments, shouldn't it? Such a person should be world-renowned as one of the most impactful people in human history. And yet, if not for his infamous role in the Bible, you would have never heard of him. There is no known society or museum dedicated to preserving this man's memory. In fact, he's virtually only remembered by Christians. And that as the baby killer of Bethlehem. He who had all the male children under two killed in a failed attempt to assassinate Jesus. Even though he was so rich and so powerful, this man is only remembered for trying to murder an infant, Christ. Of course, I'm talking about the one called Herod the Great. For 2,000 years, Herod has been relegated to historical obscurity. He's seldom mentioned in history books. You won't learn about him in school. Evidence of his wealth and genius only now beginning to be uncovered by archaeologists and they're amazed at what they find out about this man who had been utterly forgotten. Herod's legacy would be one of self-indulgence and self-centeredness. His motives were to monumentalize himself and that was his downfall. Insisted on being called Herod the Great. Demanded that people call him that in life but his death was celebrated. 
rather than mourned. Jesus said, the greatest is the one who serves. Jesus was right. Herod was wrong. 2,000 years have passed, but the conflict between self-centeredness and selflessness continues. Especially in modernized nations, those who make themselves famous, rich, and popular are honored and idolized. Those who unselfishly sacrifice to serve others are virtually ignored. But the question is this, in the eternity to come, who will be forgotten? And who will inherit the earth? Who will be like Herod? And who will be like Jesus? What about you? Where do you fall on the meekness spectrum? Is your life mostly about advancing yourself? Is it? Think about this. Are you mostly about having more for yourself, for your family? For your time on earth, are you more interested in advancing yourself on this earth or inheriting the new earth that Jesus is bringing? Are you meek like him? What about your social media presence? Most of you are on social media. Are you meek like Christ with your words? When someone disagrees with you, how do you respond? Are you strong enough to swallow your pride and take the high road? Can you let someone else think they've won? Or do you always need to have the last word? What about in your marriages? Who is the meek one? Are either of you meek? What if you both learned this secret from Christ? What if you found the spiritual strength to wash the feet of those who hurt you, even of those who betray you? What if your life is supposed to be about representing Christ rather than fairness? What if it's to to show Jesus to the world more than it is about getting what you think you deserve. That's not an easy path to follow Jesus. It's gut-wrenchingly difficult sometimes. You will wind up mourning incredible loss if you follow Christ in this world. You can count on it. You will wind up poor in spirit in certain places if you try to truly follow Jesus. However, if you do follow Jesus to those places, you will also be blessed. Yours will be the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted, and you will inherit the new earth that Jesus has promised. In short, you will have everything you would want if you really knew what you wanted. So what about it? Are you meek like Jesus? If so, then you are blessed, and you will enjoy a great inheritance in the new earth. But if you can't honestly claim meekness as an attribute, then I have another question. Are you teachable? Would you consider letting Jesus teach you? He's the greatest teacher who ever lived, and he's still teaching through his word. Everyone who comes and listens as his disciple is learning from him right now. Through his word and by his spirit. I believe Jesus is saying to your heart this morning exactly what he said to his disciples 2,000 years ago. He's saying, let me teach you because I am meek and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Doesn't that sound great? It's probably another good definition describing what it means to be blessed by God. Rest for your souls. And really that's what these next few months are going to be about as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, letting Jesus teach us so that we can be blessed and find rest for our souls. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we could never look at your life and knowing that we're to be like you and, and not be challenged. So, so often we just don't look. Thank you for steering our eyes and our hearts to look into the mirror of your word and see where we need to change. Lord, we can't just fix ourselves. There's no power in just effort. But as we turn to you for help and as we seek your spirit and, and your work in our lives, it is a partnership. And, and we, we can, as, we, as we try to be more like Jesus, you can help us to actually get there. And so, we just, I just pray that, that as a church, we would find this place of meekness, that we would represent Christ to the world as individuals and as a church in this, in this meekness, this strength with gentleness, this inner fortitude coupled with the ability to have mercy and, and grace and just to be like Jesus. Lord, help us. Lord, for that person who's here today who's never really started, I mentioned there's a starting point that Jesus said we have to be born again. There's a point in time where we give our heart and our life to you and, and we can look back and see that we've changed since then and you're growing us. And that was the point where your spirit came in and we were saved. And each of us that's planning on going to heaven needs to have that testimony and that understanding. And maybe there's somebody here today that today's the day. For most of us that happened, Many of us had happened in a church service. And, and so I just pray for that person that right now you, they would just say yes to you and turn and say, I, I don't know. Well, I haven't been sure, but today I want to be sure from this point forward. I, I want to trust in Jesus today. I want, to, I want you to come into my life, but I want you to change me. Starting today, I just surrender. I'm just putting my trust in the one who died on the cross and rose again. Jesus Christ, today. You can just tell him in your heart, the Holy Spirit, here's your prayers. Lord, I just thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the worship this morning. Thank you that we get to come together and, and just really assemble as a body of believers and lift you up in this place on all that you do in our hearts and lives when we come together. Thank you, Jesus. Be with those who didn't make it today. Um, whatever they're doing, wherever they're at, just, just bless them, bring them back to us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.